Welcome to the Wartime Leadership Podcast, where we explore what spiritual resiliency looks like from different perspectives. We often focus on the physical, emotional, and social areas of resiliency, but too often we neglect the spiritual pillar. Now, this looks different for everyone. We will be exploring what spiritual resiliency looks like in the lives of our guests, who are people from all different walks of life. Tonight's episode is sponsored by Success Draft, where we help you transform your dreams into drafted plans. Head over to successdraft.com to get started on your future today. This episode's guest is a really, really special one. Uh, he has a very, very unique story that is definitely different than anything we have done before on this show. And I did this very specifically because when I when I first heard the story, I was like, no, nah, this can't be true. <laughs> this, there is no way that this is possible. And then as he went into more and more detail, I was like, oh my goodness, this is this is resiliency at its finest. This episode's guest is David Olson. David, how are you doing, sir? Hey, Nathan, if I were any better, I would be you. <laughs> ah, <laughs> hey, I like that. You know what? I'm probably going to actually end up stealing that if you don't mind. <laughs> sure, you could have it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, David, I am I am super excited. It's, it's like I said, like this is one of those episodes where you're like, there is no way. There is no way. You you have a very unique story. Well, thank you for having me, Nate. Man, I am so blessed to have you here. But hey, how about if we start off with five simple questions? Sure, let's go. Hey, these are warm-ups. These are the easy ones. All best right. <laughs> best movie of all time. Best movie of all time, which is probably a movie that I can watch. Ah, uh, that's kind of difficult, but if I had to narrow it down, I'm a huge fan of a movie called The Shawshank Redemption. Oh, come on. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. One of the best well-written scripts of all time. Yes. Get busy living or get busy dying. <laughs> yep. And such power in that movie, just the, yeah. the story itself. And, and especially if you look at the time period that it, it takes place in. Yes. Yes. I think that was one of those underlying stories that that a lot of people didn't hit on was right. that that time period. Right, exactly. <laughs> so what what is your favorite part of that movie? My favorite part of that movie um I really enjoyed the you know the the I, I enjoyed the entire movie, but I really enjoyed that bond between I'll use the movie characters between Red and <laughs> You know, I, I really enjoyed that. And I really enjoyed, for some strange reason, the end of the movie in which he said, I really, you know, I'm going through a lot. I'm suffering a lot, but I really just miss my friend. Mm. And it just showed me the power of true friendship. Absolutely. And, and, and that it can grow anywhere. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, no. Great, great pick. I think that that one's a hard one to top for sure. Yeah. Uh, what is who is your favorite superhero? Well, uh, I would have to say that it's Superman. And the only reason it's Superman, because that's the superhero that I remember as a child. The first one, you know, now you have I think someone was saying that the 
the most popular superhero of our time today is probably Iron Man. Mm-hmm. However, for me, Superman is the uh, what is it, Mike? The kids call him an OG. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on, the the comics way back in the day. I mean, Batman, yeah, you know, ordinary guy doing extraordinary things. But come on, Superman, Superman, yes. Oh. And, and I'm just starting to watch uh, all of the Marvel movies anyway. So. <laughs> You know, we got once we once we had our son come around, we started getting the the Disney Plus, and of course they have all those, and we're we are still trying to do all of them in order. Yeah, you're right, exactly. exactly. Back and forth and all over the place. Oh, please. <laughs> all right, what is uh what is one thing that you find repulsive? Liver. <laughs> Uh, you, you know, you're not the only one. I still have that smell from my mother's kitchen in my That's nose. Liver. <laughs> oh, you're not wrong. Oh, my goodness. Now, man, you've actually got me just queasy a little bit. All right. What uh, if I was to give you two plane tickets? I'm giving you two plane tickets, David. One is to somewhere that you've already been. And another one is to a place that you have never been. Where are these two tickets to? Dubai and Hollywood. All right. So which one have you been to? Hollywood. Okay. Why would you go back there? Uh, Well, one of my best friends lives in Hollywood and I just enjoy going out there and visiting him. And I just enjoy the climate growing up on the East coast. Whenever I can go out West and warm up and experience that the low humidity, I'm, I'm excited to go. Oh yeah, no, I'm I'm in South Carolina, and trust me, I know my humidity. Mm-mm. Right, yeah, I'll take low humidity any day. Yes, I'm in North Carolina, so I know the feeling. <laughs> oh, there you go. We're, we're brothers at heart here. Yeah, yeah. you know uh, that that movie. Uh, what is it? Pretty Woman, where the guys walking around going Hollywood. What's your dream? Right. <laughs> I, I, that's what I think about when I think about Hollywood. So Dubai. Yes, and that's part of Dubai. It, it, it's part of my story, actually. So we maybe we'll get to that. Oh, absolutely. Now you got me really interested. I didn't I didn't know that Dubai was a part of that story, which is not good. specifically Dubai, but you'll understand why I picked Dubai. <laughs> all right. All right. Uh what is a hidden talent that maybe not a lot of people know about? Uh well. One would be that I write poetry. The other that I have been studying secretly um, the details, ins and outs of how to fly a plane. Okay. And so not a lot of people know that. Some people know about the poetry because I may drop a poet, you know, a poem here or there. But. Hey, I like that. That's good. And you're secretly learning how to fly a plane yes go ahead no no this is i mean north carolina so you go out there to the outer banks to kitty hawk i mean it's well yeah yeah ironically i'm i've been flying on on a flight simulator but the original love of it came from a close friend who has his pilot license in cincinnati and so i often travel up there to visit him and i actually went up with him and I just fell in love with it. Mm. That that would be the dream to own my own plane. So that's yeah. 
That's a good one. We got that kindred spirit together. All right. Hey, David, why don't you just take us through your background? Kind of give us give us the backstory of who you are as a person and what's kind of brought you up to this point in your life. Well, I was born and raised in Philadelphia. I'm a diehard Philadelphian inside and out. I moved to North Carolina about 25 years ago and so I'm a Carolinian now. However, I'm still a Philadelphia guy. And um, I currently, I worked 20 years in education as a behavior specialist, working with children with disabilities and children that have behavioral uh, issues. And over the last year and a half, I've worked at the University of North Carolina in the cancer research department. And so I'm excited about that. I love my job. I love what I do. I love who I work with. And recently I started podcasting as a little part-time hobby. And all of a sudden I've fallen deeply in love with that as well. And now that's the underground subway podcast. Yes. Yes. What's the premise behind what that, what that is? The Underground Subway is a podcast that deals with, I almost feel like I'm doing an intro here. (laughs) (laughs) Do it. (laughs) The Underground Subway. I've done it so much, I've memorized my, you know, my intro. Underground Subway is a podcast that's dedicated to giving, to giving everyone the tools, the strategies, the ideas needed to live a better life, to live a life free of all chains. And the name comes from the fact that my grandmother was first cousins with Harriet Tubman. So because I am the third cousin of Harriet Tubman, uh, Harriet had the Underground Railroad, of course. And so I said, well, you know what? We're not in, you know, we're not in those times. We're in modern times. Let's put a spin on it and call it the subway. And so, you know, we bring guests on on a regular basis and we talk about how to live a better life. One of the things that Harriet said was that I could have freed a lot more slaves if only they knew there were slaves. Mm. And so that is one of my main themes is that we can often be living a life in which we are in chains or in bondage or not living to our best because we we don't know. So we reveal better ways of living life. And I just love talking to people and meeting people. And uh, I feel like I'm always in a therapy session. <laughs> well, you know, it, it sounds pretty amazing, though, when you talk about that people that don't even know, you know, using her own words, Harriet Tubman's words on that, if they had only known that they were and and those things that we hold on to that we bind ourselves with exactly are so i mean some of those are are the worst things the things that we do to ourselves right but it's so normal we don't know it it's just a part of life i've been living this way for so long that i have no idea i had no idea that this was not the best way to live life and so that's what the podcast does we discuss so many different subjects from religion to uh, health, to mental health, to we had a pastor on once who who revealed and talked about his chain was an addiction to porn and how, you know, he had to get the wake up call of getting a knock at the door from the FBI before he could release those chains. And so it's just so powerful to be able to talk to people. That's the key. 
well, and it's it's absolutely amazing. And sometimes that's a hard conversation to navigate to sit there and try to facilitate. Yes, somebody through their chains, especially when they don't realize that they're chains. Right, right. But it's sort of when you talk to someone and you can see that that light go off, that aha moment, to when they say, mm -hmm. "Wow, I had no idea that this was holding me back from really experiencing and enjoying life." Well, probably a lot of that actually comes from the fact that you did a lot with children. Yes. Right? Yes. Being able to help them navigate through that conversation as well. Well, adults are always more difficult. <laughs> oh, oh, always, aren't we? <laughs> yes. Because we're set in our ways. Yes. And we've trained them how to behave. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, well, you know, and being a new parent myself to a 14-year-old, it's it's i'm seeing a lot more of that in my life right <laughs> a lot more of that in my life oh man so talk to us about your leadership so you have gone from working with children in in the education system to starting a podcast to being in cancer research so you've probably worked a lot independently as well as on teams walk us through your leadership perspective your style well, my leadership perspective and style is simple. It's lead with compassion. I believe we must lead with the compassion and the example of Jesus Christ, who taught that if you want to lead, you have to serve. Mm. And so my, my uh, view on leadership is simple. Do not lead with a quote unquote iron fist but lead with a heart of compassion, lead by example, lead by showing the way, lead by, instead of uh, saying go, lead by saying, come on, come. So it's two, two very small words, but both are, are powerful words and they can be on the opposite mm -hmm. end of the spectrum. And so oftentimes when, when it comes to leadership and I've led in the school, as you said, on teams, not only that, but I spent, uh, 20 years in leadership in, in ministry, in church. And so I know how to lead people. And the best way to get a result from people is to lead by example and to show them that you care. And when a person realizes that you care for them, you know, not only that, something else I failed to, <laughs> to, to say is that I spent five years as the head football coach in a middle school. So as a head football coach, that is definitely leadership. Oh and, my. and I was not the greatest coach as far as X's and O's, as far as scheme. We won our games because I was able to get those players to run through a wall for me. And the how I how did I do that? Every before every game, we would before we go out on the field, we would take a knee and say a prayer. And I will say something to these young men that they most of them never heard a man say before to them. I will tell all of my guys, I love you guys. And to mm -hmm. see these young men with tears rolling down their face, not because they're ready to go out and hit the quarterback, because they realize someone is telling me how to be better that really cares for me as a person, not cares for me on the contingency that I do my job. Yeah. And as a leader, when you really instill that into people that 
I'm leading you not because I want you to get the job done, but because I care about you. Well, you know, something I always tell my team is and and every single time before I go into a classroom, because I teach, well, I, I run the schoolhouse for the Airman Leadership School here at Joint Base Charleston. And one thing I always tell them is I can't tell you how to care, mm -hmm. but I can show you. Right. And that sounds a lot like your your philosophy going into that. But I mean, there there had to have been times, especially in the school environment, where you had to kind of have that iron fist sometimes. Well, sometimes you do uh, in regard to the children leading the children. I think it 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 sort of evolved over the eight with the age of the children. What I mean by that is uh, I am six foot two, 280 pounds. I am a very large human being. <laughs> yeah. Well, if when I'm talking to an elementary student who's in the first grade, I can stand over him and say, stop playing so much. Pay attention to what your teacher, stop throwing that pencil across the room. Mm. And he will say, yes, sir. Well, that doesn't work with a high school student who is bigger than I am. Mm -hmm. So at that point, you have to shift from the iron fist to the iron intelligent mind, so to speak. <laughs> I like that. The iron intelligent mind. Yes. <laughs> well, and, and it's true. And, and I think you have a really good approach when you say that sometimes it's just it. Well, just plain and simple it's it's caring it's showing leading by example putting your heart on your sleeve so people know it's okay to be that yes 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 definitely well hey you said that you had worked in ministry for upwards of 30 years that you you've done different things with the church maybe not necessarily in ministry itself but within the church walls what how would you define spiritual resilience two words probably come to my mind spiritual resilience palm tree okay because a palm tree will be blown all the way down mm. and yet it continues to bounce back and when it comes to spiritual resiliency we as human beings are going to be attacked on every level, we're going to be attacked, uh, whether it is through our physical health, whether it's through our emotional health, whether it's financially, what there are so many areas of life in which we are attacked and we cannot live in a, a world or live a life in which we deny the existence of the wind or the rain that comes. And the purpose and the job of the wind and the rain is to blow us down. And if we are like that palm tree, which goes, which will bend over. And sometimes we bend over and we lay there and people think that it's over. But every time there's a storm, when that palm tree goes down, the moment the attack stops is the moment that that palm tree returns to its location. And so we must have a spiritual resilience in us so that no matter what attacks us in life, no matter what it is, and some of us have gone through some very simple winds to which just the leaves blow. But then mm -hmm. some of us have gone through storms in which we just knew this is going to cause me to snap. I'm going to snap. 
And yet the moment the storm ends, because I've never seen a storm that has lasted forever. It will pass. The moment that that happens, now it's my place, my job, my nature. What's in me is to snap back. And when I snap back, there are two things that I'm going to do. I'm going to snap back and enjoy the fact that I'm back and yet expect and prepare for the next storm because there's always going to be a storm. Wow. David, I, I, man, we could just end the interview right now and call it good. Like that two words, palm tree. Yeah. That, that's rich. <laughs> There's a sermon in there somewhere. I'm pretty sure. Pretty sure that'll preach, as they say. That'll preach. All right. So you've defined it. Now, how do you build that in your life? How do you build that spiritual resiliency into your life? You build it into your life by first acknowledging that the storm comes and acknowledging that some of the things that we go through, it's just a, a, a fact of life. You know, uh, there is a scripture in the bible that says that a man is only only has a few days and his life is going to always be full of trouble so it's the expectation that a storm is coming uh it's the expectation the it's the expectation not that the storm is so strong but the 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 storm wins when i'm not prepared for it so if i build my home on sand then i can't blame the storm for blowing me away it's my mm. fault that I didn't prepare for it. So you prepare for it. And part of that comes with surrounding yourself with like people, not just being a palm tree in the middle of an open field, but being a palm tree among palm trees. So that it, if I look over and see that you've bent back <laughs> and you've mm. popped back, then that means I can pop back. And, and it's probably going to happen all at the same time. All at the same time. Yeah. Wow. A a forest of palm trees. What do you call a, a a forest of palm trees? I mean, I lived on the islands. I lived on the island of Guam for a long time, and we'd go into the jungle. There it is, jungle. <laughs> okay, the jungle. I was in there going. Uh, that's all I had to talk about was the jungle, and we got it. <laughs> and and I like that though. Is that that even as the wind blows across, and we're all kind of moving at those different speeds, that we can see each other going through stuff. And it's recognizing the next, the person next to us is going through something at the same time as I am. And then, and then Nathan, if I can interject, if I'm a palm tree in a field alone, I'm swaying. But if I'm a palm tree in a jungle, there may come a time when I fall so far back from the wind, but yet there's another palm tree to break my fall. Mm. But how how do you have so much trust in in people around you? I don't have the trust in the people around me. I have the trust in me to influence the people around me. Uh, there's an old saying. I'm sure you've heard it that you know you can't be the carrot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Got to be that coffee bean. You know, you that carrot goes into the water and it's it becomes soggy because the water affected the carrot, but that coffee bean affects the, the, the water mm. now the water takes on the coloration of the coffee bean so i it's not that i have that trust in those around me i have a trust in me that i'm strong enough to be the influencer in the room mm, nice oh wow david you're hitting me from left and right uh, tonight and i i kind of like that <laughs>
I kind of <laughs> like that. Usually I'm the one that tries to, to, to buck up a little bit, but you're, you're hitting me with some haymakers and, and I really am grateful for that. So how do you build up spiritual resiliency on the teams that you're with? So even if it's just you and, and, and one other person or a larger team, how do you build sp spiritual resiliency into that environment? Well, you have to, you as a leader, you have to observe. I sort of, uh, because we're audio, you can't see, but if, if a person holds their hand out and with their thumb facing upward and you have four fingers facing in one direction, then take your other hand and you point your hand to where your palms are facing your chest, but your thumbs are facing up. Your, your palms are facing your chest. Almost as if, right, but your thumbs are facing up to the ceiling and you have finger, there you go, both fingers, all four fingers are facing each other. If you were to slide your hands together and interlock your fingers, what has happened is each hand that you have, your left hand has fingers sticking out, but but yet there is a gap between the your, your first two fingers, your pointer and your middle finger has a gap. When your hands slide together, your right hand slides into that gap and you fill that void in your hand. So we have to look at others and say, I recognize your weakness, but yet your weakness can be filled by my strength. Consequently, I don't mind admitting as a leader that I have weaknesses. But that's where your strength should come and apply to my weakness. And if your weakness fills in the gap in my strengths and my strength fill in the gap in your weaknesses, then we can have a cohesive unit. Mm. Unfortunately, too many times we don't want to acknowledge that we have a weakness. And now we have a problem because we're all weak in the room. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, I actually just taught this yesterday about leaders are humble about what they're weak at. Exactly. You you have to be. It, it, that is such a great illustration. Like as you're talking and I'm sitting here and I'm doing it and, and, and I'm kind of like, okay, where's he going to go with this? And then as you started talking about that, you fill in those weak, that is a perfect visual of what that looks like. Just absolutely amazing. Thank you, David. So, now I know I know the background the the story so I kind of know I think I know where you're going to go with this but give us a story give us a time when you had to rely on spiritual resiliency to get through something to to get through a, a situation a time period of life uh what what did that look like for you well part of that time period in my life was recently when I came upon um, an expl explanation of my life story in which I thought my life consisted of one thing only to find out that it consisted of something different. I've always known since I was seven months old that, well, I've always known my entire life that at seven months old, I was adopted. And I was adopted by a mother that I loved, that I cared for, and she raised me in a home a loving home it was the two of us and she always told me about the fact that i was adopted and so i've always known that the struggle in life came up she kept telling me my entire life that yes you're adopted you have siblings out there somewhere but i can't find them i can't locate them 
And she kept telling me, you know, I'm looking for your mom, looking for your brothers and sisters, but I just can't locate them. And so I came to the understanding that I would never meet them until age 19 or 20. She found them in the local phone book. She found my mother's name in the phone book. I went to the house. I met my siblings and my mother for the first time. I met my nieces and nephews for the first time. And I developed a very strong relationship with my siblings, but not a very strong one with my mother. And my mother, after we communicated for a while, I kind of got the sense that she felt like the reason why her and I didn't quote unquote click was because I had some resentment in my heart because you gave me away for adoption. And so I pulled her to the side. As a matter of fact, I remember exactly when it was at her sister's funeral. After the funeral, we were standing outside and I told her, I need to talk to you and let you know something. The reason why I don't bond with you as much as I bonded with my brothers and sisters is because I grew up in a home without brothers and sisters. So meeting them was an entirely new world for me in which I was able to uh, experience going to the gym with my brothers and hanging out with my sisters. I said, but that emotional part of my life that should go toward a mother has already been used with this other woman. I said, but trust me, there is nothing inside of me whatsoever that resents the fact that you gave me away. I said, there's absolutely no bitterness at all, because I think about the alternative. You could have killed me. You could have put me in a trash bag and threw me in a dumpster. You know, so the fact that you loved me enough to give me away, I appreciate that. And so our relationship went on back and forth for years. For I mean, years. When I say years, I mean about 30 years. We, you know, we had a good relationship, a working relationship. Uh, one that if we were out, she would tell people I was her son, et cetera. But it was just really never that really mother-son bonding. And so one of the problems that I've always had in life was that I've wanted to travel internationally, which get which goes to the Dubai part. I've never been able to leave the country because I don't have a passport. Well, uh, the reason why I don't have a passport is because I cannot get a birth certificate because there is no birth certificate. There was no birth certificate ever created with the name David Austin on it. And so I've gone through so many meetings trying to uh, figure out how to do it. I spoke to senators, to attorneys, and everyone said, we don't know what to do. We can't help you. You can't do a name change from one name to the other. I did manage to have, I had a social security number. I had a driver's license, everything, high school diploma with the name, but there was never a birth certificate in created with that name on it. I had a birth certificate with my birth name on it, but nothing ever connected to it. Oh, because wow. when she adopted me, she, you know, got the social security number at that time. The only thing you needed to do with get a driver's license is to give them a baptismal certificate from the church. They took that as identification. And so a um, couple years ago, time is going by and I'm still trying to figure out how will I ever get to travel in my lifetime? Will I ever get to travel outside of the country? Can I, you know, I can't even go on a cruise because I need a passport. 
And so I'm talking to, to my mother one day and she calls me and she asks me, how am I making out with my getting my passport? And I said, well, unfortunately, I'm at a dead end. There's nothing I could do. I called this uh, Philadelphia to the register of these and they said they couldn't help me. I applied for a passport and they denied it and kept the money. And, <laughs> you know, yeah. and so I called again and the register of these said, well, we read your story. There's nothing we can do. You know, and my mom said, well, what do you really need? I said, well, what I really need is my adoption papers. I had asked my adopted mom for them who died in 2011. And she would always tell me that the papers are in, uh, in the closet in a folder with all these papers. And I, she kept telling me she was going to find them and give them to me. She never gave them to me. When she died and they cleared the house, I never got the papers. So I asked my mom, you know, I said, you know what? I really need those papers. And there was a long pause. And I said, why are you so quiet? She said, well, I have to tell you, there are no adoption papers because you weren't adopted. And okay, now where is this? Going? What are you talking about? And that's when she laid one on me that uh, when I was born, I was the youngest of six children. I was sort of like, if you can remember the Brady Bunch, where they had three boys, three girls, all of them right around a year or so apart. And they were girl, boy, girl, boy. Well, that was my family. And I was Bobby Brady. I was the little one. <laughs> the baby, the last one. And she said that at that time she was so financially strapped. She couldn't take care of six kids on her own. My dad was offering no help. He went downtown and told the city of Philadelphia that he was giving her money. So they cut off all of her assistance because they felt like he was taking care of her, which she wasn't. So she contacted a friend who had a friend who had a sister. Mm. The friend called his friend and told his friend what was going on. The friend said, well, I'll talk to my sister. The sister, who was my adopted mom, came to the house and told her, well, ma'am, listen, I will help you. You know, I belong to the church, so I will help you. Let me long-term babysit your baby. Let me have the baby long-term. And the moment that you get on your feet, you can have your child back. This will give you some time to collect yourself to get on your feet financially without having to worry about whether or not you got to buy diapers and food, at least for the baby. My mother said, yeah, take the, take him. And uh, she said, well, tell you what, let me get him and the, the little girl, my sister who was next to me. My mom says, no, just take the baby and I'll come get him when things start looking better for me. Well, my mom then uh, goes to get me back after some months and she knocks on the door, no one answers. The neighbor comes out and says, ma'am, who are you looking for? And she says, I'm looking for Miss Austin. You mean the lady that had the little baby? Yeah. Oh, she moved out. As soon as she got that baby, she moved away. She packed her stuff and moved out. So where did she move? We don't know. So I asked my mom, I said, do you know what you're saying that happened to me? That I was abducted, basically. She said, you were. She said, because the friend disappeared. The friend of the friend disappeared. No one knew where she went. There was no tracing her or you, whatever. And of course, you're talking in the 60s. So, you know, it's not like it's Google where you can find someone. 
She says she went to the police and the police told her, ma'am, in essence, you are right because that's what happened. But legally, there's nothing we can do because it's not like the woman came to your house. And when you went to the restroom, she took your child. You gave her your son. Wow. And so while she's telling me this story, the bond between her and I is getting so strong because now I can imagine what she went through. And she said that she just immediately started drinking because she said, I'll never see my baby again. And after some years of drinking, uh, her sister came to visit her and told her, you know, you're going with me to church tomorrow. We're going to get the pastor to pray for you because you got to stop drinking and using drugs. And she went to church and the pastor stopped praying and said, listen, I have an idea. How old is your son? She's, at the time, she said he's five. That means he has to be in school. So he divided up the, all the church members and they went through to every elementary school in the city of Philadelphia looking for me. They came to my school where I was sitting in the classroom and asked the secretary if I was there. And the secretary said, no, we don't have a um The problem was when they came, they asked for my birth name mm. and not the name that she changed me my name to. Later on, I would obtain my school records and I could see my enrollment papers had both names on it, but highlighted to only use David Austin. So the secretary didn't know. And so at that moment, my mom just came to the conclusion, I'll never see him again. And so uh, that was that strong moment in my life in which I realized, wait a minute, this, this is a moment where I could lay down or I can bounce back up and not let it affect me. And so go ahead. So, uh, I mean, that's a lot to take in. Like I knew the premise of what we were going to be talking about, but just to hear it all kind of laid out that way is just, I mean, I, I, I feel like I have a weight on my shoulders trying to deal with the processing of this information in this short period of time while you <laughs> dealt with it i mean it's almost as if they were perpetrating a fraud on yeah, your and, life and then when i managed to talk to my siblings the closer we got we began to share stories and we found out that we actually played together in the same playground and i didn't know who they were oh wow i was in the seventh grade and i remember seeing this beautiful girl and my friends would tell me go say something to her and i said no i'm not gonna talk she's older she's in you know she's an eighth grade i don't talk it was my sister wow so we were together but yet so far apart so why why do you think your mom your your birth mom never told you about this situation when you were first brought to her by well that of course that was the first question i asked why are you telling me this 30 years later and she said i didn't want you to develop bad feelings about her confront her and hate her for what she did and so i remember telling her i said listen let me tell you something and i want you to hear me perfectly clear <laughs> hmm. i know i'm the son but hear me what you told me has not changed how i view her at all mm. but it has changed how i see you because for the first time i really feel as though you're my mother 
100%. So after I spoke to her, I immediately got off the phone. I said, okay, let me validate this story. And I called my the two family members on my adopted side who are the quote unquote historians. And I asked them, where did I come from? Both of them, without speaking to each other, I made two separate phone calls. Both of them said, I believe every word of it because she told us as a family that she found you on the church steps. Huh. <laughs> wow. As I'm talking to her one day, this is my adopted mom, about helping me. May I have my adoption papers? I called her and I'm talking to her. Her sister was there and I could hear her. She told me, you know, I'm going to find those papers. I'll give them. Her sister in the background says to her, you need to tell that boy the truth. Wow. She tells the sister, be quiet and mind your business. Well, at the time, I had no idea what the truth was. <laughs> David, I, I am just stunned. How, why? There's a lot of questions going on in my head. Just, just <laughs> so you know, there's a lot going on in here. Why, why did you choose to keep the name David Alston even after finding out? Well, after finding out this, I've only found that found this out about four years ago. Mm. So I've had David Alston my entire life. Everything is that is my identity. Um, it's you know so well. And, and here's a my original my birth name. My first name is Edward. And so when I met my family for the first time, I remember walking into the room with them. And they're just sitting there and they came over and hugged me and spoke to me. And my sister, one of my sisters walked over to me and said, well, hey, Eddie, it's nice to meet you. And I said, my name is David. And so that's who my family know who I am, David. Well, my biological mom who passed away Christmas of last year, mm. I'm, she's in the hospital and I go to New Jersey to visit her and we're in the hospital room alone, just one visitor in the room. And we're talking about how much pain she's in and so forth. And she, you can tell from her speech, her language that the end was near. She was just prepared to go. And so I, as I left the room, we told each other that we loved each other. And I remember saying to her, uh, hopefully I get to see you again soon. I got to drive back to Carolina, but hopefully I'll see you again soon. And she said, okay, well, I love you. I said, love you too. I said, I really, I love you. And she said, I'll see you later, David. Well, when she said that I turned, walked back over to her and looked her in the eyes. And I said, my name is Edward. Oh, uh, wow. You, I think that there was a moment of forgiveness where you just had to look and, and allow, did she call you Edward after that? No, that's the last thing we ever said to each other. Man, that is impactful. Just, just for her to be able to hear you acknowledge the name that she gave you, right? right? 
a name is legacy. A name is is who we attach ourselves to. And in that moment, you attached yourself to her, which was probably a pretty special moment for her. Yes, for both of us, because I felt, you know, here's some finality. Mm. Closure. Well, not so finality, just closure. Well, it's 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 a blessing that you got to have that moment. You got to have that time with her knowing who she was to you yes and now you've got a bunch of siblings now how did it come down to find out that you were connected to harriet tubman well i went to my first family reunion and while we were there they pulled out the the family tree was on a big table and they had a historian there and i'm saying why is this guy here what is he and so as we looked at the family tree on this large uh conference table so to speak my daughter who was with me began to look at it and she said dad no one is going to believe this and i'm saying believe what i mean there, there yes there's my name okay dad no one none of my friends will believe this what and she said look who we're related to and that's when the tree showed that my grandmother my mother's mother uh, my mother was the youngest of 22 children. My, yeah, my grandfather had, my grandfather through four wives had 22 children. And when my grandmother was uh, Gola Ross, Gola Ross, her dad was Henry Ross. Henry Ross's brother was Benjamin Ross. And Benjamin's daughter was Araminta Ross. Araminta Ross changed her name to Harriet and married John Tubman. So my great-grandfather and Harriet's father, who my mother kept calling Uncle Benny, were brothers. <laughs> Uncle Benny. Uncle you know? Benny. <laughs> and so my mom, before she, uh, we, we did, she did live long enough to see the movie Harriet. Oh, and she began to tell me, you know, how meant some things were true. Some things were just made up for movie. And the one thing she said that she got from the movie was Uncle Benny. <laughs> she said, yeah, uh -huh. here's Uncle Benny. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, you didn't know Uncle. She said, no, but I kept hearing because, the, you know, they these, these the years are so far apart. Harriet was born so far. My mother was born in 1937. Harriet was, you know, but she said that's all she ever heard about from her mom and grandfather was Uncle Benny. <laughs> wow. And that's that's just man, it's it's a beautiful ending to be able to connect all these different dots. You've got your brothers and sisters. Now you've got these these six older siblings that have have they continued to come around you? Oh, yes. We're all very, very close. We're very close. Man, David, I am very, very few times in life am I speechless. <laughs> but I think you drove me, uh, you, you drove me to speechlessness in, during this story. It's a beautiful story, though. Well, thank you. Thank and you. You really craft it really, really well. And this is this is something that's really, are, are you writing a book? Let me just put that. Are you writing a book? Well, I wrote a book, but the book that I wrote was has to be had to be pulled because everything was wrong in it, because I wrote the book based on the premise that I was adopted. Mm. And so my struggle in the book, the purpose for writing the book was to 
connect with other people that have been adopted or foster children because my struggle was that I was torn between two mothers. Mm. Because I, when I'm with the one family, I'm thinking this really isn't my family. When I'm with the other family and I'm torn, which mother? And I remember asking myself one day, which mother do I owe my allegiance to? The one that pushed me into life or the one that pushed me through life? Mm. And so I wrote the book. And so now I'm rewriting the book and uh, someone has heard it and they want me to turn it into a screenplay. So I'm working on doing that. And maybe my story will help someone. Oh, I agree. I, I agree 100 uh, percent. I I associate with your story because of my son, the adoption of our son and and what we have gone through in trying to connect with him when he was 11, 12 years old and just coming to live with us versus now at 14 and that that adjustment and what's been there. But how do we keep him true to his family's name, right to his to his heritage, where he came from? So I associate really, really well with that. But I think this is going to be a beautiful movie. Well, the struggle for like with your son and what I went through is this constant debate in life over nature versus nurture. Mm. Are we who we are because of our nature or our nurture? And for the first half of my life, it was strictly nurture. And over the last half of my life, I'm starting to see more of a nature part to be around my siblings and say, and to hear them say, man, you sound just like mommy, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that's nature. <laughs> I remember that. I'm not going to talk too much, but I remember uh, talking to my mom one day and this really drove home how strong nature is. I cannot fathom. I can eat peanut butter and I can eat toast with jelly. I can't fathom eating the two together. I just never liked peanut butter and jelly. I'm rare. I don't do it. <laughs> I was talking to my mom one day, who ironically had, was in the same profession that I was in, in education, who said the kids wanted to eat peanut butter and jelly. And I told them, don't eat that junk. Peanut butter and jelly is just nasty. And I said, oh, that's where I got it from. <laughs> so, so it's important that nature is important. I think on the nurture side, as adopted parents or foster parents, that we need to tap into that nature part because that is a part of them and yet continue to nurture them and give them mm. what you have and that will build them to be a complete person. I like that, to be a complete person. Mm -hmm. Nature versus nurture equals a complete person. Complete person. Yes. Wow. David, absolutely amazing. Hey, do you have any book recommendations for the listeners or any books that you're currently reading either which way yes i'm always reading something and unfortunately sometimes i read and i uh <laughs> i put one down and pick up another one and pick up another one and pick up another one but one of my favorite books that i i keep re i continue to read is by mel robbins entitled the five second rule and that has helped me because that five second rule is one that 
uh, it really gets you from from the time you get up in the morning. I was laughing because I got up yesterday and I sat on the side of the bed and I just sat there and sat there and said, well, that five second rule teaches you that you have to count down five, four, three, two, one, and you just go. And so it has really helped me. And another one that I like is called is by Ryan Holiday called Stillness is the Key. Mm. That's a very good book. And, you know, it just teaches you to just connect with your life and your mind and just, you know, not be so hectic in life because life can, like the commercial says, it comes at you fast. Mm. (laughs) Absolutely. David, do you have any final words uh, that you want to part part with us? Yes. Two, two final words. Thank you. (laughs) Because this, opportunity to to speak has been such a blessing to me to share my story and i just thank you for having me well david we are very grateful for you and the willingness that you have to give us your story to because it, it really is a gift to to know where people come from it's a gift to understand what spiritual resiliency looks like to different people because we have a lot of people that we come across in life that are looking looking and looking and just don't know what they're looking for in a lot of cases and when they hear stories like yours when when it's given to them in a way that they can unwrap and they can see what it looks like they can truly understand what spiritual resiliency looks like through the eyes of someone else today's episode is only possible thanks to my friend g frazier with 369sounddesign.com Uh, Jeff has the hardest job in the industry because he has the the rare opportunity to make me sound good every single week. So we are blessed by the entire team here at the Wartime Leadership Podcast. We will see you next week.